Warning, this is not your father's history. This is not the history your coach taught you in high school. And you won't find it on the History Channel either. No, you see, this is the history your mother warned you about. This is History Against the Grain with your hosts, Chris Paget and Josh Weiner. Fifty-five, and no lessons were learned. Welcome to the podcast, where we, in the words of Walter Benjamin, regard it as our task to brush history against the grain. I'm one of your hosts, Josh Weiner, and with me, as always, is my co-host Chris Paget. Welcome, Chris. Thank you, Josh. How are you doing, my friend? Hey, spring has sprung. I'm in shorts. This is the time of rebirth, right? And our podcast is being reborn now in spring after a monthly our monthly uh break so uh yeah life rebirth all that kind of good stuff's in the air and some bad stuff as well <laughs> as, we'll as we'll get into <laughs> yeah um, i hadn't i hadn't uh, really noticed i was so intoxicated yeah. by the the coming of spring although you know it occurred to me uh because when i you know was a kid the the, the movie mm-hmm. that sort of symbolized the california the young california generation was this movie the endless summer oh yeah right it was a su- surfer movie right yep and uh and I was going to say, yeah, you know, the rebirth of spring and endless summer, but that kind of has a negative connotation too now. It's really grim, summer, isn't it? <laughs> it yeah. just means global warming. Yep. Bigger <laughs> so waves not- though, right? Is it go- global warming big, mean bigger waves? I don't know. That's right. They've co-opted it, darn it, yep. from the surfers. But uh, yeah, there's certainly no uh, shortage of, uh, well, let's see, you know, fodder for conversation, I guess. You know, you and I were laughing earlier. It seemed like when we started the podcast... Right. I, I, you know, I hate to attribute any sort of causal connection to any of this. Yeah, right, but right. we started the podcast, went into a two year quarantine, you know, traveled through the, the paradigm of, of a racial justice revolution, you know, mm. witnessed the near end of American democracy and <laughs> an insurrection. Uh, and I guess just because we were we were gunning for more. What standing on the doorstep of nuclear war now or something? Yeah. No, we're, we're big believers in the great men of history idea, and, and we're clearly the great men of history <laughs> leading to all these 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 events going on uh, since since the podcast. We're driving history. Um, but yeah, obviously there is this, uh, we'll call it a conflagration happening in uh, in Eastern Europe as the Russian invasion of, of Ukraine is ongoing. Um, you know, we'll first of all just say that we're thinking of of the Ukrainians, and and this is this you know really a, a horrible moment that involves you know outright brutal behavior on the part of of the Russians and the invading forces. It's destabilizing, uh, horrific, all these kinds of things. But that's not really our avenue to to kind of uh, analyze the uh, you know the troops on the ground and the uh, the tactics of the various sides and all that kind of stuff. We're not going to go into a deep uh, analysis of the military situation in Ukraine. Because what we're more interested in, um, and what I think we're probably better at and, and more um, attuned to, to, to looking at, is the way that this stuff is talked about. Because, you know, it very much falls in line with some of our general critiques of the way history is used and, and misused. Um, so, you know, there's been a lot of analysis going on. You know, in, in all areas, you can turn on, go onto Twitter. You can, you know, 
turn on your local news. You can uh, see all this. A lot of people are being trotted out to talk about these issues. And in general, as a general statement, um, it's been pretty gross watching a lot of these people and reading a lot of these people uh, discuss this moment in history, particularly when they try to connect it to a broader history, because it really reveals a lot of the uh, the kind of vacuum where their own morality and sense of shame should be. I totally agree. Yeah, it's been a lot of, uh, let's say, barf worthy uh, commentary <laughs> that is, you know, passed as, uh, I don't know, punditry, commentary, you know, analysis, wisdom. And I, I truly, Josh, I don't know about you, I, I, I sense this. We. It's not like we're sitting watching a lot of corporate media, you know. It's not no, that I'm none, basically right that I'm channel surfing, you know, across CNN and and uh, you know Fox and I, you know, really, uh, it's probably based on I guess what things we're seeing through Twitter uh, and maybe some of the feeds that we follow online. Occasionally, the New York Times, yeah. which, by the way, has been a real you know, boneyard of commentary, a oh, lot boy. of it really, really awful. Yes. And and I'm not just talking about the the typical kind of commentary, the op-ed, you know, featured commentators, right? Which is, right. you know, it's certainly the dregs for the most part. Uh, but even some of the guest uh, uh, commentary, you know, in the Times has been pretty bad. There have been a few good things. We're going to talk, or at least what we see is more enlightened commentary yeah. we'll talk about a bit but uh yeah but first the bad you know and, and just to set this up uh from our historical perch you know after the fall of the berlin wall in 89 and the uh the putative end of you know the eastern bloc and communism uh the breakup of the soviet union uh in particular there was a lot of crowing you know, in in the in a, in the commentariat of of what we we'll call the West, you know, of Western Europe and the United mm -hmm. States, about all of this finally uh, representing what the end of history, right? There was yeah. a, a fairly well known book uh, called "The End of History" uh, by uh, our friend uh, Francis uh, Fukuyama, yeah. and this was this idea that the that the you know, the race had been won, right? That yep. the bifurcated world of communism and, and capitalism, uh, the capitalism had won out. And thus, in some basic sense, uh, we now, and it was meant to be a salutary thing, right? That we now mm -hmm. could look forward to the end of history, where history was seen as the pitiless cycle, you know, of various dark interests. Uh, but that now, fortunately, the liberal democracies had prevailed, uh, the you know, the Enlightenment heritage had, had prevailed. And that we could just look forward to what, you know, sort of uh, resting on our laurels, you might say, and uh, and enjoying the fruits of our of our labor. Yeah, liberty had won out. It was going to continue to spread around the world. And, you know, so this, this is a kind of view that I think a lot of our major commentators kind of bought into, right? And I don't know if people remember this or listen to the episode. I think it was a couple episodes ago. I was quoting from um, uh, this this author I like, Pankaj Mishra, and he, he talked about you know part of the problem with the whole kind of Anglo-American view of the world is it's so I think he uses the term is so extravagantly ima imagined it exists only in their imaginations, but they hold to it so firmly that they're constantly being surprised by every new crisis that hits because they never saw it coming, given that they thought history had come to an end. You know, I'm, I'm reminded of that now um, because, you know, here we are living in the same system that created all the same crises of, of the previous century. 
Um, and for some reason, they thought those the time of Christ had come to an end, and they continue to be gobsmacked every time something something mm-hmm. new happens. And the frustrating thing, you know, talking about commentary is um, seeing all the same, you know, kind of tired personalities pop up once again, and you know, as a, as a new crisis, as a new commentary is needed. It's all mm-hmm. the same people who have been continually wrong for about thirty years now, um, but have somehow attained, you know, such an air of of uh, you know gravitas or something like that that we keep having to hear from Thomas Friedman and and the like. Uh, you know, we can throw in our our, our buddy John Meacham, I guess, as, as well. Um, endlessly trotted out uh, to 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 speak on various things, despite a lack of expertise and despite being wrong about everything for forever, right? But but yeah, constantly having to hear from these people. Um, well, and even, uh, well, I was going to say one of your favorites, uh, Fiona Hill, even when your resume comes, you know, as an exalted list of, of uh, national security positions that is at the highest level of American foreign policy and government, which you would expect then with that kind of exalted resume, you know, maybe a different level or depth of commentary, you know, than just the, the normal corporate media you know, talking heads. Uh, but but that's the problem, because if your resume is built on the last 30 years of American foreign policy, you got to think that's a disaster, right? I, I mean, that's that's it. That's it. You just hit like hit my my nerves right there, because if you somehow make it up to the upper, upper echelon of kind of the foreign policy elite with, you know, position in the Brookings Institution or, or you know, certainly a, posi- a position in a presidential administration, what that means that you're a monster. There's no way you reach that position without being a monster who spends their career justifying American crimes abroad. That is the entirety of American foreign policy. So, you know, Fiona Hill, we'll talk about more, more in a bit, but this is a, a woman who's, um, has this incredible resume, you know, raised in, you know, near poverty in, in, I think Scotland and, you know, makes something of herself, gets this elite education, becomes an expert on Russia. And she is incredibly intelligent, well-versed in, in the history and then you read her stuff and it's just completely empty of any kind of moral considerations um, beyond, you know, what the other side is doing. There's no sense of kind of self-awareness. There's no sense of complicity. Um, it's just empty. And that's, you know, so indicative of the kind of broader conversation, which um, sees the world in this very simplistic way. And we'll talk more about this in, in a second, you know, in a bit, maybe in the, in the second part, just about the, the challenge of being a historian in this day and age and, and wanting to say something, but being drowned out by, you know, a variety of actors who can say things more, more simplistically and then therefore more uh, digestible by TV anchors. And I think the TV audiences. It's kind of like, well. the, yeah, it's kind of like the food has already been chewed for you. So it's a lot easier <laughs> to swallow. <laughs> the a bird just comes in. Just, well, you uh, know, what, what are the, one of the yeah. people we like a lot and and whose whose views we respect is a guy, uh, Tim Schneider, Timothy Schneider, um, yeah. who uh, is formerly, I guess, uh, uh, at Yale. He's a professor at Yale, but really mm-hmm. he's held a bunch of, you know, interesting sort of uh, positions uh, in both the U.S. And, and Europe and Eastern Europe. But uh, in any event, one of the things that Schneider uh, talked about, and again, we'll we'll dig a little deeper into what he has to say is that after that whole uh, moment of, of, of the fall of the Berlin Wall, uh, the fall of the Iron Curtain, uh, the end of history, as it were, mm-hmm. is that you had this sort of strange effect. And I think we're just now starting to see it. And I have to be honest with you, Josh, I caught myself doing this early on in the uh, the war and in, in Russia's invasion of, of 
Ukraine, yep. is that we created a kind of a, a, what I'm going to call a a, a kind of uh, historical, um, you know, acoustic <laughs> void. Suddenly, we couldn't hear recent history very well because of of this idea that history had now been resolved and it ended. Mm-hmm. And so, when we look back to something as even as recent, say, as World War II. The conditioning there was to see it as what? Something that was in a past that hadn't yet been settled, but because now history is settled, it's safely in the past. And and here's what I mean. So according to Schneider, we've raised a generation, a kind of millennial generation of expectation that those things are no more. So mm-hmm. when we see pictures from the streets of Kiev, you know, or Mariupol or any of these Ukrainian uh you know, cities for which we now know the names. And we see scenes that could have been peeled right out of what? 1942, 1943, Nazi invasion of uh, of Eastern Europe, Ukraine. You know, uh, I caught myself thinking, uh, oh, gee, I thought this was a thing of the past. You know, and so I had to, I mean, I had to like go dunk my head in a you know, in a plunge of a cold bath plunge or something, because uh, I realized that what I was running on there was that kind of millennial post-history expectation that certain things we just wouldn't see again. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> the the thing that that stands out there is obviously, you know, the U.S. has been at war for, you know, my the, the entire lives of my children. Um, mm. You know, these scenes were happening in Afghanistan. They were happening in Iraq. Um They've been going on for a long time. There has been no stop to war. I mean, a lot of the commentaries talk about the end of war and the decline of war. But, you know, war has best just transformed into a, into a new kind of system, as we'll talk about more in, in a bit. Um, I think that's what strikes people about, about, you know, this specific war is that it looks the way we think war is supposed to look, as opposed to the wars the United States has been fighting for the past few decades, mm-hmm. um, which look different than, you know, this kind of traditional tanks and, and planes and uh, sieges and this, this sort of thing. Um, and, you know, you, you, you talked about the fact that the, the kind of the end of history thing and, and World War II being in the past. But what's so frustrating, I think, is that World War II seems to be the only historical reference anybody has, that everything is, is World War II. Um, and what that, that means, the reason this is troubling for me, because, you know, part of, of kind of that post-World War II attitude, a particularly post-Holocaust attitude, was never again, right? Um, you know, go to, you know, September 11th, never forget all, you know, this kind of thing. What we're obviously, you know, the idea of, of a world that stands up to, to genocide is, is laudable and something we should be shooting, shooting for certainly, uh, or, or striving for. But the way that that gets weaponized is, is really disturbing because never again means, you know, we should never allow this kind of atrocity to happen again, but it also can then become this pitch for conflict right that that this is the moment that we have to stand up to this requires war but the thing about this is you know i talked about those same tired commentators always showing up on our tvs and our news feeds and this kind of thing for them it's it's always never you know it's it's always the the next the next atrocity it's always the next thing it always requires more warfare um because you know again that's their interest that's their job is is talking about and writing about and thinking about and planning for conflict um, so they continually go back to these, these these notions. Every leader is the next Hitler, right? Remember Saddam mm-hmm. Hussein was the next mm-hmm. Hitler. Now mm-hmm. Putin is the next Hitler or the next Stalin, as we'll, as we'll talk about. Um, their historical references are so limited 
that every event that they, you know, that, that comes about essentially, um, you know, can, can be understood and talked about in these very simplistic terms using, you know, the one thing that, that I think a lot of Americans, even historically illiterate Americans can latch onto. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's, it's again, kind of gets at just the, the simplistic way that this stuff is, is talked about, which does no good for, for anybody, unless you're getting paid for your appearances on CNN, I guess. That's true. You know, if it's job security, which mm -hmm. as when, you know, when you live on the East coast, right. You talk about inside the beltway, yep. right. You know, when you live inside the beltway, then being someone who the newspaper calls or who yep. the evening telecast calls is his own kind of uh, career, you know, yes. and, uh, but, you know, here's what it, for me, I guess the point I'm trying to make, you know, is it, it created a kind of muscle confusion, you know, yeah. in my, if, if we can consider, you know, my, my thought processes to be kind of like analogous to muscle confusion, you know, is maybe it's just confusion, uh, is that, uh, <laughs> but yeah, is that, uh, the folks who are very much in that camp of, of, you know, we're living, you know, the end of history, all of mm -hmm. that was resolved. Are, are nevertheless constantly seeking to explain all this to us using terminology, as you point out, uh, using stock historical figures and scenes yep. and putative lessons learned, you know, mm -hmm. something like the Munich conference always gets yep. dragged out and the, you know, the, the, the mistake of appeasement and that sort of thing. And yet all of that, that whole sort of, uh, you know, treasure box of ready analogies, lessons, tropes, figures, all comes from the period before the end of history, right? Yes. In other yeah, words, yeah. you know, and so uh, which is it? Are we living in, you know, the, the post-historical period where all that got resolved or aren't we? You know, and, and, and because the thing that has, I know, really bothered us you know, just on its face has been uh, one of the most commonly sort of what resorted to or referenced tropes from the particularly the Cold War year, certainly uh, from the post World War One interwar period, but certainly the Cold War years is this idea of Russia versus the West. Yeah. Oh, my God. The West has come back. Um, and there's when I say the West has come back, I mean that that idea of the West um, has been resurfaced in and weaponized, I would say, in a very clear way. Um, you know, we've been working on this project. We're trying to get rid of the Western Civ Survey at our at our college. Um, so we've been very deeply ensconced and like thinking about you know this idea of the West and where it came from and you know what it means, uh, what it meant when it was created, and what it still means now. And we, I think, we had seen kind of a decline in in references to the the quote unquote West. Um, and as soon as this invasion started. Man, the, the West people are, are coming out of the woodwork and spouting their West versus East stories uh, once again. You know, the Western Bloc versus the Eastern Bloc is that old Cold War trope. Um, but, uh, you know, post fall of the Soviet Union, I think that kind of went away. I think it had become clear that the West meant, you know, maybe included Russia. Do you think it do you think it came to include Russia in that post Cold War period for a time? Uh, yeah, I think there was a, a, a sort of pregnant pause there, right? Because yeah. you had Boris, you know, first you had Gorbachev and then Boris Yeltsin, who seemed, you know, rather enamored of the West. Yeah. 
right? You know, I remember Raisa Gorbachev in Manhattan, you know, looking fabulous in her Russian mm. furs, but but going into Bloomingdale's or, you know, whatever the, you know, yeah. the then uh, Au Courant, you know, sort of, uh, you know, place to, you know, for a, a stylish Western woman to, you know, to pick up a new outfit. So I think there was some sense that that might be the case. And an example that keeps getting brought up too is when McDonald's opened in Moscow, yeah. right? Right. And how they snaked, they snaked around the block or around Pushkin Square, like three deep, just yep. to get in and, and get that Western uh, fast food experience. Which maybe the only good outcome of this of this war is that my uh, one of my least favorite commentator, Thomas Friedman, um, had this theory that no no countries with McDonald's never gone to war with each other, which was the dumbest, <laughs> like, yeah, just the dumbest idea ever. I mean, again, technically true, but totally useless in any kind of analysis. Um, but there is, it turns out, you, uh, McDonald's in both Ukraine and Russia. So his dumbass theory is now is now fully dead. But uh, I, well, and I think you'd agree. The only West we're really in the mood to hear about right now is is the great Laker Jerry West, who being right. one of the uh, characters portrayed in the new HBO limited <laughs> series on on the uh, the Los Angeles Lakers. Uh -huh. uh, the Jerry West, the familiar as the emblem of the NBA is depicted as a rather hilarious, uh, over-the-top, <laughs> profane character. So listen, that West, I think we've gotten a lot of entertainment out of. This other one, not so much. And and the other trope, the other bad trope, if you'll allow me one more, Josh, yeah. and, and just to set it up for you so you can take a good healthy cut at it, is that along with the West, you know, you, we have to have the great man trope, you know, of, of history then also uh, framed for us. Now, when I say great man, keep in mind, it's always bifurcated. So mm -hmm. uh, if you're going to have a hero, you got to have a villain, right? So yeah. the, the great bad man of history, you mentioned Hitler is the eternal, you know, yeah. analogy. Right. For that. Yeah. But in this case, Vladimir uh, Putin as the great bad man of history that is somehow driving this maniacal non-Western uh, scheme to topple the West and therefore... Uh, and the media, the corporate media really can't help itself, right? Because they fall so easily into these these binaries is mm -hmm. that therefore Joe Biden is our <laughs> good, great man of history yep. who's going to have to face him down at high noon or something. What? Right. Well, and, and, and the, the problem here is that history actually is not just driven by by these great men standing up and, and making history on their on their backs. It's always more complex than that, of course. But. You know, it's so um, attractive to the kind of popular culture version of these of these stories. You know, biographies sell, for instance, like that's that's just a, a reality that if you can write a presidential biography, you're probably going to sell more books than writing a complex dissection of the politics of anti-Westernism in, you know, Japan and the Ottoman Empire in the early 20th century, which is a book I'm reading right now, by the way. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, you're, you can you you make money on biography, you make money on on great man history if that's what you're what you're after. And because it makes for something compelling, it's it's a nice narrative way of trying to make sense of complex things. It just has the the, the one problem that it doesn't actually explain <laughs> anything at all, right? Mm -hmm. um, it leaves out a lot of the context. It overstates the importance of of singular individuals, um, and it leaves us grasping for any kind of understanding. To to reference back, actually, something we talked about in a episode that feels like it was years ago now, um, the Michelle Rolf trio line uh, that. Uh, it provides truth without meaning. You know, these kind of biographies can, you know, tell us some facts, but ultimately don't get us any closer to understanding anything because they're bereft of any, any 
meaning any analysis that that can can make sense of things um yeah. but you understand why this is attractive to bookers on on tv to you know people who have to line up interviews for a big article in the new york times uh, but we can be better than that and we should be better than that and, and that's what we're going to get into essentially is you know what is the role of historians um in times like this or i guess just more generally what is it our job to do when people have questions, because this is a, a moment, you know, I, I just went back to teaching on ground for the first time in two years. Um, and one of the first things a student said when, when class started was why is Russia invading Ukraine, right? People want to know. Um, and <laughs> what I did is the exact thing nobody wants to hear. What I said, it's complicated, but it has a lot to do with nationalism. I didn't mention Putin. I didn't mention Biden. I didn't mention, you know, Stalin or the Cold War, I said, it's largely about this concept of nationalism, which we're going to spend a lot of time talking about, and which explains a lot of the disasters of, of the 20th century and, and beyond. That's not the kind of thing that I think, you know, CNN wants somebody saying when they when they step up to the, to the camera for one of these interviews. Um, they no, want, you know what? They do, yeah. I know they don't. And you know why I know they don't? Because I, I managed being the, you know, the, uh, the glutton I am tuned in yesterday to the Supreme Court hearings. Yes. Yeah. Uh, that is the, no the nominee of Katenji Brown Jackson yep. to the Supreme Court. Uh, and I, and I tuned in specifically to catch what I hoped would be one of the worst displays of white <laughs> nationalism, you know, reactionary white nationalism yeah. from one of the Republicans. And I wasn't disappointed because I happened to catch it just in time for Ted Cruz. Yeah. And, uh, and Ted did not disappoint, but you know, we tried to pin down, uh, Katanji uh, Brown Jackson on this issue of the 1619 project, you know, which we've talked a Boy. lot about, yeah, because that's one of the favorite, you know, yep. sort of, you know, whipping posts now of the right and whether or not she agreed, you know, because she had mentioned it in a speech somewhere, whether she agreed, she called it provocative, by the mm -hmm. way, uh, which I thought was sort of a strangely neutral thing to say about it. But OK, right. anyway, uh, that was enough to get Ted on his horse because he said, uh, you know, that one of the lines from that was that the founding fathers, according to Nicole Hannah Jones in the 1690 Project, the founding fathers had fought the American Revolution to defend their interests as slaveholders. And Ted wanted to know. Uh, did uh, she agree with that? You know, now, ne never mind what she said in response. She was basically being a good Supreme Court candidate and and evading and ducking. And saying dodging, nothing, right? Saying nothing. But it's the way Ted said it that mm -hmm. I think interested me, as if there were something at the altar of America's past that, frankly, you know, was too sacred, touching on a theme we've developed in recent episodes. It was simply too sacred to even entertain any serious disagreement about, you know? And uh, and I would say that leads me, before we jump into this next bit, about the third trope that's been so annoying. If the founding mm -hmm. fathers are out of reach, if the very model of Western democracy is out of reach, then so too, or apparently, is there some sort of either ethical or moral Set, a set of ethical or moral standards, certainly moral standards, let's say, that go along with these others that we're mentioning. That is with the West, right, with the great man theory uh, yeah. and therefore with the moral code uh, that is sometimes imagined to reside in what an international rules based system. Mm -hmm. that, that that ultimately was resolved in the competition during the Cold War by the victory of the West. Yeah. 
and that somehow yeah. now what Putin is doing is a violation of that moral uh, code, a moral set of moral standards and rules based system. Would you say that's something we've also been treated to in a lot of the analysis? It's it's everywhere, you know, both very explicitly, you'll see a lot of references and pieces to the rules based system and then kind of more um, implicitly referencing just kind of a, the post-war order or, or things like that. Um, and, you know, we'll, we'll talk much more about this, but I find this incredibly frustrating. And, um, you know, what, what it ends up being is it, it's erasure, right? It's, it erases a lot of suffering of a lot of people in the post-1945 world who apparently were never informed that they were part of a rule-based system because mm -hmm. the rules apparently didn't apply to them, or rather their rules only applied to them and didn't apply to the people who, who had constructed them in the first place. So um, we will get much more into that. We'll talk rules-based systems. We'll talk the West. We'll talk commentary in segment two. Show some respect and listen to my advice. Because if you don't challenge me on anything, you'll find I'm actually very nice. Are you listening? I'm actually very fucking nice. I don't like your kind of people. I don't like to see you come out to this clean country in your oily hair, dressed up in those silk suits, and try to pass yourselves off as decent Americans. I'll do business with you, but the fact is that I despise your masquerade, the dishonest way you pose yourself, yourself and your whole fucking family. We're both part of the same hypocrisy. Well, there you had uh, Michael Corleone, uh, played by Al Pacino, young Al Pacino, in one of the classics of uh, the last uh, several decades of Hollywood history, right? The Godfather. This is Godfather Part Two, where the young Don was speaking to a U.S. senator, which uh, I, I, I like the transition, don't you, Josh? I was talking about Ted Cruz. We yep. go right from the... Uh, the real uh, Senator Ted Cruz to the fictional Senator uh, in the Godfather who's trying to sh shake down Michael for a gaming license. And he's still a million times better than Ted Cruz, by the way, I would definitely <laughs> vote for him. Um, right. And, and Michael and Michael, uh, you know, Michael's point we thought was, was, uh, you know, pertinent here, right. Uh, this idea that we are men of the same hypocrisy. Yeah. Uh, because uh, the problem with all that, uh, you know that, that that commentary that we've seen, and and I know you're, I'm going to I'm going to let you take it and, and run with it here in a second. But but that at base it creates a, a, a an oversimplified binary right. of an us versus them, with all the virtue on one side, and 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 all the roguery on the other side, or something. And so yeah, we we thought Michael uh, helped. He sums that, but it was literally the first thing I thought of when we were having this conversation <laughs> about this stuff. That's just like Michael Corleone. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah, so what we want to get into now is is what is it we do? What is what is it that historians do? And what we want to you know the way we want to approach this basically is um, talk about some of the the worst commentary and kind of do a little breakdown of that that commentary, but also talk about some of the some of the people who have been doing really good work in trying to expose what it is history has done, and I mean that in a negative sense, but also what history can be and how it can enlighten. Um, you know, I've said many times on this podcast that, you know, my, my ideal of history is that good history broadens the imagination and bad history shrinks it. And I think, you know, that really is the, the, 
the thing that that connects you know the stuff I like and the stuff I don't like all this commentary we'll, we're going to be critiquing has that purpose of kind of shrinking our imaginations right shrinking our reference points that we talked earlier um, telling history in a simplistic binary fashion um, and the best stuff you know is self-reflective um, it's involved in kind of meta meta thinking and meta history um, it's uh, unwilling to simply just fall back on tired tropes and this sort of thing and so we want to we want to highlight kind of both those sides of it as a way of of you know hopefully getting at what it means to do history in times like this. I was going to say times of crisis, but I think we live in eternal crisis now. So just mm-hmm. living in times, I guess we can now say. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that question then, what is the role of, of historians in moments like this? And I want to go back to uh, past guest Priya Sadia, who um, has written about this in, in a number of places, including her book, Times Monster, and, and a number of pieces she's published um, in many different journals. But um, she says that history in its formative period in the in the 19th century she says quote it was built to endow morally questionable events with purpose and meaning revealed in the narrative end of history right that's a kind of a nefarious purpose for what history was supposed to be don't you think yeah nefarious it's hard to say you know fool or knave you know do, do yes, people yeah, believe are they true believers or are they just running a game you know but yeah. uh, but either way and i know you have more to say about, about priya uh it's often been passed off as gospel yes yeah no that, that's right and and you know so this is kind of the, this kind of liberal imperialist history that she's particularly concerned with but i mean even even kind of marxist history or at least you know marx's marx's view of history was in its itself kind of apocalyptic, apocalyptic and teleological. Um, I've you know heard Marxism referred to as secular Christianity in the sense that it has an end of times that leads to this this brighter world. So this kind of runs across you know different views of history, different ideological views of history. That history was um, a path towards some some narrative end, as as Priya says. Um, she goes on though to, to to kind of talk about what changes, and she says by about the 1950s and 1960s, in this kind of decolonization time or post-colonial time, histor- historians increasingly broke free of those kind of old shackles of of narrative history. At least some some people did, and she says history now became, and this is a former episode title as well. History became a province of mutiny, and one when this happened, one of you know as, as she talks about. Um, this was probably a good thing uh, in, in general for for the discipline of history, but it also had this effect of of um, historians kind of losing their voice in popular culture. Um, you know, it used to be there were famous historians. Right? <laughs> that was an actual thing, famous historians, um, <laughs> which is not so much a thing anymore. And, and the famous historians are people like, you know, John Meacham, who's historian only in quotes. Uh, but uh because once history became a province of mutiny, it ceased to provide these these simple answers to a popular audience. And the answers they could provide were, were things people didn't want to hear. So as fewer people in our discipline, you know, began to traffic in those visions of history um, as kind of, you know, leading towards some great end, um, Fewer of fewer people were available to then show up on our screens and show up in our papers to discuss history as it was becoming, as opposed to history as it used to be studied. The problem with that is that that left a lot of space for these holdouts, the people who continued to cling to this, you know, particular vision of history, that binary history, that 
um, teleological history, the triumphalist, deterministic history. Um, and so these became the people who filled up airtime on radio stations, on television uh, uh, stations, you know, in the, the, the big uh, popular journals and this sort of thing. And as that happened, uh, you know, everybody else was, was drowned out. Um, and so what we end up with is, is what we were complaining about earlier. We get a bunch of recycling, a lot of the same people who can get wheeled in front of a microphone or camera to spout the same hoary cliches with the same tired historical references uh, with simplistic narratives. Um, and what has been particularly frustrating, and we, I'll, I'll turn over to you after this, is that as part of this, this process, there was no particular need to ever be right on any, about anything, right? The same people got called to the, to the, uh, you know, to commentate whether or not they were ever right, um, at, at all. And so we get this continual parade of the same figures saying the same things and never actually explain the world in any, any useful manner at all. And to me, that's the challenge that we're in, we're in right now. Who wants to hear what we have to say? Um, our students, they have to, but, it can be harder and harder to reach an audience um, once you've kind of entered this province of mutiny that Priya is is talking about. Yeah, you know, the reason that's so powerful, I mean, one of the many reasons is that this notion of a, a mutiny is yeah. itself uh, steeped in what a criminality, a yeah. breakdown, anarchism. Um, and so, you know, again, I'm, I'm going to go back to the example from yesterday's uh, Senate hearings that just the way Senator Cruz and Ted, I mean, Ted Cruz was an accomplished college debater from what yeah. I understand. Right. You know, and, and there's a thing, you know, if you if any of you have ever participated, uh, say, in a high school debate or, or you know, uh, is is this idea of, of arg argumentation. You know, of 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 becoming accomplished, you know, at putting forward an argument, and so mm -hmm. uh, he knows how to do this. Uh, and that you know, his his formal training, right, as a debate team member, has, yep. has carried him through. I would say much of his political career, and you know, politics is nothing if not, uh, particularly at that level, you know, political theater and such. And so when he tried to pin down. Uh, the, the the nominee, Katanji uh, Brown-Jackson, tried to pin her down by associating her with the 1619 Project, mm -hmm. right? You had to sort of understand what all these kind of dog whistle meanings were of yeah. these things, right, for it to make any sense. And uh, just the way he would elocute certain words. And at, and at one point, Josh, you know, he, he says of the founding fathers, you, you know, in disparaging 1619 and this idea of a self-interested slave owning, you know, uh, establishment, you know, he, he, he in, evokes one of our favorites here on, on the show, Gordon Wood. <laughs> right. And he says of Gordon, Wood, I forget, he calls him something like, you know, the esteemed historian. Yeah. In other words, white, male, old, <laughs> or Ivy League. That's all you need, right? Right. As if, you know, arguing to the person, you, you wouldn't be able to assail that kind of credibility or something, mm -hmm. you know. And and as we've said many times, you know, Gordon Wood, look, I went, I was yeah, I was yelling at my TV screen at that point, Josh. You know, I, I was saying Gordon Wood's a dinosaur. 
Yeah. And, and I don't mean just that in the sense that I guess he's now probably an octogenarian. I mean, the last thing that he re- wrote that mattered at all to any kind of historical debate was in the early 90s. Yeah. You know, Which is recent and, history in my mind, but I guess that's a long time ago now, right? Well, no, but in, in terms of the mutiny of history, you're yeah, kidding no, me. You're the right. last 30 years of historiography in this country has completely dismantled that Cold War consensus, yeah, you know, of absolutely. what the American Revolution was and all that. And so, yeah, I, you know, I guess it's like uh, dog years or something. 30 years is a long time. In terms of the scholarship, the last 30 years at least, that has dismantled that yeah. thing that Priya was talking about, that teleological triumphalist narrative of the West and its ascension to toward the end of history, you know, the yeah. eschatology, the end of something. And, and it ends, by the way, not in tragedy in that vein, but rather in culmination and fulfillment and apotheosis, right, of, of a kind of exalted rising. And so there he was, Senator Cruz, you know, uh, you know, uh, pandering to his base with these various kinds of, uh, you know, white nationalist uh, racist tropes, but also very much in the same vein then as that triumphalist nationalist American history, as if those two things are essentially what are are joined together. And and they are, in other words, mm-hmm. to talk of that, that uh, that traditional uh, historical narrative, you know, that, that d- frames so much of what we're still hearing now in terms of the commentary on Ukraine uh, is that it is essentially a white nationalist, uh, and we could add on, you know, there are other add-ons here, you know, capitalist, you know, liberal capitalist uh, narrative that tries to present itself, not unlike certain universalist claims of religion, as being universal. Absolutely. I mean, that's the thing, right? That's that's the entire story of, of modernity is that you know, these very particular ways of thinking and, and you know, imagining ourselves and our world emerges out of a, a context of Europe and then gets written as universal and applied everywhere, right? And, and literally to be considered modern, if you're not from Europe, if you're not white, um, was to adopt those same assumptions about the world, those same universal assumptions about the world. And, you know, the thing that, that stands out, and this is what's, again, so frustrating about all this, is that... Um, if you were paying attention, if you're, you know, Japanese in the early 20th century, if you're Indian, if you're, you know, Algerian, Egyptian, I could name, you know, keep naming places, you could see the hollowness of this if you really looked. Now, people are convinced by this for a time. They, you know, they they see civilization as universal, but what they keep finding is that no matter how much they try, no matter how much they try to adopt, you know, these ways of, of thinking again, then these assumptions about about the world and history and and civilization, it was never good enough. They were never totally going to be accepted. Um, and so, you know, that's again, you know, the, the, this issue of, of viewpoint and, and where the, the gaze is coming from is that we so often take these same universalist assumptions from, you know, the enlightenment and modernity and are still applying it to a world and assuming that everybody sees things in the same way. But of course, those who are kept out of the system, those are denied access to, you know, rights and laws and and uh, rules and all these kind of things are not going to see these things as universal as those who are protected by those rules and those laws and and those systems. And you know, again, that's what 
Ted Cruz is kind of speaking to there is that this this universalist view that he assumes his audience is going to accept. And, and by the way, listening to you talk about Ted Cruz, I, I almost feel like he crafted his uh, you know his his part specifically with you in mind, specifically to make you angry. Um, <laughs> it's almost you know diamond focused how much he was hitting your buttons in in his uh, his line of questioning there. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, no, I, I'm sure Ted would in, enjoy uh, you know getting the what do you consider the the lib you know, uh, mm-hmm. getting the code of the lib or something, but I, but clearly it's, you know, it's crafted for, for his, his base. Yes. And, you know, I'm, I'm so glad that, you know, it, it, you're bringing up this, this idea, you know, that, that Priya has that so, so much of what we're seeing and so much, you know, what has bothered us in, in mm-hmm. a commentary about, uh, Ukraine is steeped in a kind of unexamined understanding of what history is. Uh, yes. In other words, I would I would argue that a lot of the attempts to explain what's going on currently in in Ukraine is itself a kind of appeal to history type of argument. Yes. That that history and, and Priya is you know wonderful in in sort of drawing out the genealogy of this right in mm-hmm. Times Monsters and other pieces she's written that you know by the 18th century you know, this age of, of dawning science and, and enlightenment that, that, you know, what people and, and, and in growing, I guess what we consider a kind of secular global understanding, you know, in the early yes. modern age, well, of, then, yeah. yeah, expanding markets and material interests across enormous distances. And, you know, so, so states like, you know, Britain and, and, and the Netherlands, you know, Holland, Spain, certainly the Spanish Empire, have to make ever more universal claims because their theater of operations is so much larger and growing. Yes. And so having a kind of historical rationale for all of this, that somehow mm-hmm. you're on the right side of history. History isn't just whatever happened in the past anymore, like a chronicle. Yeah. You know, like our history students always think it is like a memory, mm-hmm. you know, memorizing dates and names and those kinds of things. But history is, in effect, a kind of organism now that itself is driving our lived experience forward uh, in, in, in the context of these new national states and their ever-growing radius of material interests and global reach. And so... Uh, in effect, it had to be the equivalent of a kind of, you know, it had to be a secular religion. It had to yes. offer the same divine dispensation, you know, that that formal religion would, you know, so that you know you're on the right side of history, just as there was a kind of dem- divine cosmology from, you know, the creation forward. So too now is there a kind of historical cosmology of the nation state. Uh, the creation of the nation state. And, it, you know, look, there was a famous book back in the 80s called The Miracle at Philadelphia. It was about mm-hmm. the Constitution as a moment of creation, a miracle, right? A divine occurrence. Even the, you know, the filial pietism of the founding fathers, that these great men of history are like, are they're like what? Uh, you know, uh, Hebrew patriarchs from the time of Abraham. Or something, you know. Yeah, there's a there's a, a, a title the Chinese uh, emperors will sometimes have, among other things. They were the pivot of all things. I was, I was that, that made me think of that, you know, Modest. kind of a pivot. Yeah, the pivot of all things that you know the earth and you know, the heaven and earth kind of revolved around, and that's how you know that's how events are sometimes understood in this version of of kind of Enlightenment style history is that there are these pivot moments in which everything circulates around, and those moments 
almost always include a bunch of white men or sometimes a singular white man, you know, making history on his own, driving change, being an agent of history, as, as Priya yeah. talks about, which is not something that people used to really think about before. Um, well, because exactly. history is driven by God, not by not by man. Exactly, exactly. And so man has to burnish his his credentials by sort of taking a page from Holy Writ or something, yeah. Holy Scripture, you know, because as she points out, as Priya points out, so much of this historical progress, historical development was going to involve war. Yes. And war by necessity then was going to involve suffering and inhumanity mm-hmm. and destruction. And if you didn't have a rationale for that, then you would have to give up your claim to being in a kind of what, a kind of providential historical lane. In other words, if, if it was providential, it had to be ultimately morally exalted. Right. But if it's morally exalted, how do you then square it with all the suffering, you know, the inhumanity of war and that sort of thing? And of course, Priya has written now a couple of books, right? You know, The Mm -hmm. Empire of Guns and Time's Monster, in which she has talked about how they squared this circle, you know, how the drivers of the, we'll call it now the Western model of, you know, global liberal capitalism, war capitalism managed to pull that off through what she calls conscience management Mm -hmm. and by resorting to then this claim that because it is divine and providential and teleological and progressive that the suffering was just what josh kind of in a way that michael corleone might understand uh, it was just the cost of doing business it was collateral damage but not to worry because we're heading toward the apotheosis. Yes. I mean, so here's a, here's a, a quote that kind of directly speaks to that. She says, while speaking of peace and humanity amongst themselves, American and European imperialists defended spectacular violence as the most efficient way to discipline others in the name of peace. She, she talks frequently about, you know, the Pax Britannica, the, the British peace having to be secured through constant war. Um, and so this is, it's such a useful way of kind of squaring that circle so that, you know, your form of violence is not just the barbaric violence of the Mongols or, you know, the Goths or, or something like that. It's a violence that's, I've used this term in past episodes, it's it's salutary, um, it's necessary, it's disciplinary. Uh, but where it's eventually going to get us is to a point where we don't need to engage in violence anymore because the right people have now been, uh, been disciplined. Um, you know, I've mentioned Thomas Friedman a, a few times before. I just, I have to use this quote that he he spoke right before the invasion of Iraq in 2003, uh, where he's trying to justify the war. And he's going to use that same kind of disciplinary language that, that Priya uh, is, is talking about. He says what they needed to see, and I guess they being Iraqis uh, what, or, or just Muslims in general, I think actually what they needed to see was American boys and girls going house to house from Bosnia to Basra to Baghdad and basically saying, which part of this sentence don't you understand? You don't think, you know, we care about our open society. You think this bubble fantasy, we're just going to let it grow? Well, suck on this. That, Charlie, is what this war is about. We could have hit Saudi Arabia. It was part of that bubble. Could have hit Pakistan. We hit Iraq because we could. Now, that is psychotic from the start. It's brutal. But the logic of it is exactly the logic that, that Pri is talking about, that this violence, while extreme maybe, while spectacular, as she says, is for a larger purpose, that it's going to have an effect. 
And it's that effect that matters. And the, the, the violence is just a means to that ultimate end, which is, I guess, security as you, you know, that's, that's what he's, he's thinking about freedom, I guess, maybe is in there somewhere, but security is, is the main thing. Uh, security, uh, for sure. It depends on the, on the conversation, right? Yes. In other yeah. words, you can alight on, you know, different rationales. Uh, certainly, as you mentioned, security, freedom, yes. Uh, you know, ma material wealth, uh that i mean you know and that's just the for starters i mean there's yes. no end of of this i i really like you know how priya uh you know i didn't talk about this but you know she used and it has me almost ready to read war and peace this summer josh uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> she does this thing with tolstoy right mm -hmm. you know who's who's living in this age of of war and and well, I think what Priya would say, it's essentially the same age of war we're still living in, you know, mm -hmm. uh, except for the uh, the chronology and, you know, some of the, as you say on the crime drama, some of the names have been changed or whatever. Yeah. But uh, she says that, you know, Tolstoy, this is when Tolstoy becomes famously a, a pacifist, right? Mm -hmm. You know, is that, it, in, and in the pages of, of War and Peace, you know, you sort of play out, but she says that Tolstoy recognized, in other words, the moral peril of liberal empire, which insisted that the providential spread of Western European civilization may require destruction along the way. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was sort of the central moral tenet, you know, of, of Tolstoy's writing at that point in, yeah. in the great novel, you know, War and Peace. And so look, you know, and just if we're not being clear and it's entirely possible, but uh, <laughs> impossible. I, I disagree, it's impossible. Is that uh, the reason we're, we're going back into this is because even though it gets bifurcated, even though there's a binary, East, West, us, them, you know, Biden, Putin, uh, all that, is that essentially you could say, you could apply this analysis we're using, you know, that the Priya has, has opened up and some others have opened up uh, and apply it equally to Putin, Putin's governing of Russia or Joe Biden's governing the United States. I mean, you know, Ted, Ted Cruz would be aghast at that, although they seem to be a lot of Russophiles these days in the Republican Party. Yeah, so weird, huh? As much as used to be. But uh, that for whatever the the contextual differences might might be, and even some of the, uh, you know, sort of uh what sort of thick description differences of their 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 own cherished notions of history you know and i've read different things about putin but essentially they're both of them still in this teleological eschatological vein of of historical thinking uh with with many uh you know of of the names changed but no, that, yeah. the geographic context change you know putin may be more you know, what sort of central Eurasia or something, you know, as I've read in some of the pieces, you know, looking at what's inspiring him, you know, whereas Joe Biden clearly ensconced in what we would, uh, you know, call the West. Nevertheless, they're both in that that historical vein that we're describing, which justifies, among other things, this kind of uh, cost of doing business, you might say, on the way toward historical fulfillment. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It you know, because people keep talking, I keep seeing references to like historical patterns. I'll, I'll talk about uh, a, a Russian historian in a second who who references this, but historical patterns and, and what that that quote you just read from Priya, the one about, um, you know, the moral peril of the liberal empire mm -hmm. is that it requires destruction along the way is that, you know, Tolstoy's writing that one in the, in the early 19th century. Is I have my timeline right? 
Um, uh, yeah, sort of mid mid to late 19th century. Mid to late, okay, sorry. Uh, mid to late 19th century. But it's not that there's a pattern that's that's happening. It's the same, it's like you said, it's the same thing with the, with the names change. Um, you could find, you know, the same kind, and, and Priya's done this and other people have done this uh, certainly as well, you know, kind of statements about the British in India and justifications for the British Empire, um, which match up almost directly with, you know, justifications of American occupation in Afghanistan. Like the language is, is so, so similar. Um, you know, Priya's written a lot about the use of, of planes and, and bombs for security purposes in the empire. And you can find, you know, American proponents of, of air power saying virtually the same things as, as uh, British commentators were in the 1920s. It's not patterns. It's the same system that was built, you know, in the, the birth of modernity in the 19th century and still largely, despite the, the, the mutiny of, of some historians, um, still largely presides over elite conversations even today. And that's, you know, why, why I uh, had to quote Thomas Friedman there, because he's still talking about that salutary violence, that, that exemplary violence that would be necessary um, on the path to, to, to something greater. You know, he's using, I don't think a British person in the early 20th century would say suck on this, uh, but, but they might, you know, use similar kinds of logic. Well, I'm pretty uh, sure at, at, at Churchill, Churchill did say that, didn't he? He did. He, said. I'm guessing he must have. Yep. Uh, yeah. And I think, you know, that's such a good point. Uh, the, there is a, a seeming a, a kind of timelessness almost mm -hmm. across the last few centuries, you know, where that, that sentiment may have been uttered in a clipped British you know, West End, uh, you know, accent or something right. as opposed to whatever, you know, Friedman's, uh, you know, tough talking New Yorker. Is yeah. that what he is? That what he is there? Like you know, roll, you know, two fisted New York columnist or something. Uh, but essentially the same paradigm. And and the other guy, you know, we like a lot, Timothy Snyder, we mentioned before uh, yeah. out of Yale's a, a historian um, who really uh, made his bones doing Eastern Germany. The guy's written more than a few books on Ukraine for crying out loud. Yeah. Right. You know, right. but, but we were listening to Tim Snyder over the last several years. He's had a lot to say about, well, these various issues that is, uh, you know, the state of history now uh, in, in the 21st century, certainly. Uh, and, and, and where these nation states fit into that narrative. And uh, I want to read you here something. It's what he calls this thing we're describing, Josh, you know, as you know, he calls, the, the politics of inevitability. Mm -hmm. He says uh, what the politics of inevitability does is that it teaches you to narrate in such a way that the facts which seem to trouble the story of progress mm -hmm. are disregarded. So in the politics of inevitability, uh, if there is a huge, say, wealth inequality as a result of unbridled capitalism, we teach ourselves to say, that's kind of a necessary cost of this overall progress, close yeah. quote, right? So <laughs> what he means by progress or the story of inevitability or the theory of or the politics of inevitability is, is not just the progressive teleological nature of this historical thinking, but the idea that it's self-justifying. Mm -hmm. You know, that it is so providentially true and clear uh, that it is its own justification and therefore in that sense inevitable. You might as well be the, what, the medieval pope who issued a bull against the coming of the comet, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Th this, this is inevitable, this progress, you know? And so there is, a, a, if nothing else, a kind of arrogance quotient 
that is built into this, right? That came with that certitude of scientific inquiry, right? In yes. the age of enlightenment, that the laws governing nature are now being applied to the laws that govern history kind of thing. And so, look, yeah, you you, uh, you talking heads, you pundits, you, you leftists, you commies, you, you as Ted said yesterday, Senator Ted said, Marxists. Oh boy. You know, I mean, dipping their ladle deep into the Cold War year, these yeah. folks live on the other side of the end of history. But nevertheless, criticize all you want, complain all you want. This is good and true and inevitable. And this yeah. this is is true for Putin's understanding of Russia's actions in in Ukraine. Yes. As it has been for the British actions in the Punjab, you know, as it has been mm -hmm. for the United States uh, on the Northern Plains, right? In the Philippines, yeah, and, and many other places, yeah. Um, now, I, I, it's, 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 I think, really important to, to, to get at this. I do want to, like, get into some of our commentators that we're, we're more critical of, um, because we do see in their writing a lot of those, those assumptions about about what's happening. I do get a sense and I don't want to read too much into this because I don't know, you know, what how people are thinking internally, but I do get a sense that, you know, one of the reasons that that some people um, are so passionate in critiquing Russia is certainly just the violence and instability it, it, it it's bringing. And I don't want to, uh, you know, um, minimize minimize that. But I do think that some of the passion is also that it disrupts that their their views of history, right? It's in the, getting in the way of what was supposed to be this providential history that was supposed to lead somewhere. And now, you know, this Russian attack is making their essential view of how things are supposed to happen seem like it might be wrong. I mean, we have um, uh, Yuval Noah Harari, or is it Noah Yuval Harari? Uh, Harari, a guy we've we've liked in the past. Um, his book, Sapiens, I think is still very interesting. But he wrote a piece in The, in the, the Economist, which uh, is behind the paywall, so I couldn't read all of it. But he's making an argument that um, that essentially what's at stake in Ukraine is the direction of human history, right? That, that again, here's somebody who believed things were heading in a certain direction and now this particular moment disrupts it. Um, why this war and not any of the countless other wars that have happened across the 20th and 21st century are uh, getting in the way of that directionality of history, I'm not clear on. Um, but, you know, that that view is 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 very much in the water in a lot of these, these comments um, and, and amongst a lot of the thinkers who are commenting on Ukraine. Um, I do want to bring up Fiona Hill again. We, we mentioned her earlier. Mm -hmm. And I want to stress again, you know. I argued for Fiona yeah. Apple and you said no. <laughs> she has it less has to say about this, weirdly enough. <laughs> it was going to be Fiona Hill or no Fiona at all. Yeah. Is that right? I was very okay. confused. I thought it was Fiona Apple at first. I couldn't figure out how she got to be in the Trump administration. But um, I want to read a little bit of, of the piece. She did a long interview in Politico that was, uh, you know, being passed around the usual uh areas of, of social media, um, because partly partly because there was some alarmism in it, you know, talking about nuclear war and that sort of stuff. And Fiona Hill is an extremely capable person and, um, you know, expert in in Russia, has been studying it for years, been studying Putin for years. But when I read it, I'm not just seeing that expertise, I'm seeing these assumptions that we talked about. And so I want to read just a little bit of, of, you know, some of her responses. At one point, she says, Ukraine has become the front line in a struggle, not just for which countries can or cannot be in NATO, or between democracies and autocracies, but in a struggle for maintaining a rules-based system in which the things that countries want or not, uh, sorry, the things that countries want are not taken by force. Uh, so there's maybe a starting point. I got more to say, certainly, 
But uh, it's a struggle Ouch. for maintaining a rules-based system, which things are, that countries want are not taken by force. Um, what do you think about that? There's that rules-based system we've been talking about. Well, uh, not taking things by force. Uh, let's see, where do, where do we start? You know, uh, uh, would it be your spring break trip to Hawaii? Maybe yeah. where you contemplate that question as you lay on the sandy beaches of, of Kauai, wondering how that tropical paradise ever came into the possession of yeah. the United States in the first place. Uh, yeah, the, the, the word we give to, uh, to modern nations uh, is what, kleptocracy? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, someone, uh, a, a, a kleptocrat, or at least a, a kleptomaniac, is yeah. someone who's always taking things without permission and yeah. often by force. And so it's a strange thing to consider uh, when you have someone as accomplished as Fiona Hill saying that, mm-hmm. uh, someone who her, herself has been in the thick of, of high level national security discussions about recent American wars, yes. right, uh, in which uh, the United States has presumed to take all kinds of things. So, again, how do you account for it? And I think that's why we're why we're talking about this. We fall back on it represents a certain unquestioned historical mindset. Yes, absolutely. I mean, against every bit of evidence you could possibly find in which people have been taking things that uh, by by force for decades and decades, even after the end of the Cold War, for a foreign policy elite like her in the you know the upper circles of you know foreign policy discussion to pretend like there was a time when that wasn't happening until Russia invaded Ukraine is just patently absurd. Um, it's it's I I could not believe it when I when I read that sentence. Um, but there you go. She goes on to say. Every country in the world should be paying close attention to this. Yes, there may be countries like China and others who might think that it is permissible, but overall, and here we get to the, the kicker, most countries have benefited from the current international system in terms of trade and economic growth, from investment and an interdependent globalized world. This is pretty much the end of this. That's what Russia has done. So I don't have time to take a poll of most countries around the world to ask if they feel like they're benefiting from the current international system, but I'm guessing it's not going to be quite as uh, in the in in favor as as Fiona Hills is suggesting there. What did our friend uh, Abdul Mukhtar say about that? Uh, <laughs> yes, <Great laughs> living point, in yeah. Mali, you know, modern day mm-hmm. uh, Africa. Uh, it's 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 astonishing, you know, yes. and, and it reflects that kind of uh, conceit, uh, let's call it, or you know, perhaps arrogance, you know, my my. Uh, myopia you yeah know? uh it's myopic you know is that uh you you interpret the world through the lens of your own cherished uh ideology you yeah. know and you, and you fashion it with a kind of historical the imprimatur of a you know, history that then gives it a kind of uh, undeniability or as as tim snyder says inevitability or something yeah uh, it's, it's, it's extraordinary, but it, but it, you know, there, there's Fiona Hill, you know, I, it was the same thing that I heard yesterday in that Supreme court, uh, hearing, you know, for, uh, the, the Supreme court nominee is that, uh, there are just certain things that we can say about ourselves that are not to be disputed. They're, they're essentially self-evident, mm-hmm. right? And uh, I guess, you know, call it, do you call it faith? You know, yeah. I, like, yeah, I think so. 
it, this thing that doesn't need proof, yeah. you know, right? You just take it on faith or something. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's extraordinary because that is a person who even now as we speak, I mean, she's been, I guess, more of a pundit recently, but I mean, until very recently, certainly even during the Trump administration, she was yeah. in, you know, positions of decision-making power within our, uh, our national security and foreign policy establishment. Yes. I mean, literally in the room when Trump and Putin met on, on multiple occasions. <laughs> yep. She was at the tail. You're right. There's a, pic a picture, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, so going back to this, the rules based system thing, you know, again, it's just it's it's a it's a term used so often and it, it ends up being so hollow when you, you know, spent pay any attention to the last you know 150 years of history. I'll just say we'll go back further. But, you know, I'm sure that the, the, the statesmen of Europe, when they met in Berlin in 1885 to determine how Africa was going to be carved up among the different powers, believed they were in, they were part of a rules based system. Right. They absolutely believe that that's why they were meeting, because they were not you know, barbaric savages like there used to be. They were going to solve these issues and they were going to do so peacefully so that everybody could have what they want. Of course, within their rules-based system, um, they didn't have to worry about, you know, the the lives of, of you know, the various Africans who would be, have their territories carved up in this process um, because that didn't matter to them. It, it was about the rules as they applied to these European powers and that was it. In the post-World War I or, uh, world, as the, the, the victors of the war tried to settle matters, you know, at Versailles, they believed they were creating a rules-based system. Um, did the Japanese believe it was a rules-based system when they, you know, tried to get an amendment into the Treaty of Versailles that was um, a racial equality clause and it was denied? I don't think they did. But again, I think you would, if you asked most of the, the French and the British and the American statesmen there, they would say, we've constructed now a new rules-based order. Every generation believes they created a rules-based order since the modern world began. And every time that rules-based order is created, there are all sorts of people who are left out, who are left on the outside looking at the rules as they apply to some and not apply to others. Um, and so it, it, it takes such a, a blinkered view, such a narrow view to believe that what we've had since 1945, I guess, uh, but certainly since the 1990s is anything resembling a rules-based system. I guess we could do a litany, a list of you know, all the CIA back coups and the overthrow of legitimate governments. Uh, I was just going to say, I can't, you know, I'm, I'm chomping at the bit here because yeah, I got, it. I got, I got one for you. Right. Yep. You know, uh, is, and it, and it even predates the, uh, the obvious, you know, obviously nefarious rules breaking of the cold war, uh, the secret wars, the CIA in other words, uh, yeah. but, but goes back to what is sometimes called the good war, and that is yeah. World War II, or the greatest generation, mm -hmm. uh, as intoned by Tom Brokaw. So the United States, uh, by the late 1930s, was signatory to an international treaty uh, that essentially prohibited the willful military bombing of civilian populations. Mm-hmm. OK, now, uh, as we know, in the run up to uh, the Second World War, uh, the Germans anxious to, to test out their their new Luftwaffe, you know, uh, got involved in the Spanish Civil War. And as Picasso famously uh, memorialized, uh, bombed civilians, uh, mm -hmm. the uh, so memorialized in Picasso's famous uh, portrait of Guernica, right? The the northern Spanish town mm -hmm. that the the Germans bombed so close to the ground, by the way, that the people uh, at the street level 
could uh, see the uh, the faces of the pilots. Mm -hmm. In other words, the German pilots as they came in. So, uh, so, so Germany broke, you know, the the the, the treaty agreement. Well, it didn't stop there, right? In other words, as World War II unfolded, ultimately uh, the British, of course, who themselves were subject to the famous Blitz, you know, or, or the bombing, uh, you mm -hmm. know, of, of London and you know, uh, hiding in the uh, you know, in the, yeah. the, the, the tunnels, the, yeah. uh, the tube, you know, uh, that, that we've seen in, in Ukraine, right. You know, people yeah. hiding these subterranean uh, subway, uh, tunnels and other places, but, uh, famously, of course, by the end of the war, the United States would also, uh, be routinely bombing civilians. Mm -hmm. And I guess maybe the famous example, you know, because of, of, of Vonnegut's slaughterhouse five was Dresden, the bombing of Dresden, Germany. One that's not as as maybe well known would be uh, in the the war in the uh, uh, the Asian theater uh, against Japan. Now, obviously, the the famous August 1945 detonation of of the two atomic bombs on two Japanese cities, uh, Hiroshima mm -hmm. and Nagasaki. We, we know that we don't always think of that as civilian bombing, but we should. But less often do we think of what had preceded that, right? That is, under the uh, command of General Curtis LeMay, who was Army Air Corps commander in charge of the bombing campaigns against Japan. Uh, by the way, that was worked out logistically that because there was all this, you know, how do you get bomber planes to cross that amount of, of open ocean to reach Japan from U.S. naval bases with enough fuel and not carrying too much weight. You know, so you know who the guy, the logistics expert with his degree from the University of California, who, who ran all the numbers to figure out what those bombers, those U.S. bombers could carry against Japan? That was Robert McNamara, right? Mm, the future, yeah. uh, one of the, the, the uh, mm. uh, uh, high corporate executives of the Ford Motor Car Company in the 1950s will be most famous for overseeing the development of the seat belt. <laughs> so it's good to know Ironic. that the man who was responsible for the safety of American uh, automobile passengers was also the logistics expert that in World War II was responsible now for the devastation, the firebombing the napalm firebombing of 60 Japanese cities, including Tokyo, was estimated in one night in February of 45 that upwards of 100,000 Japanese residents of Tokyo perished in the firebombing. Yeah. 60 cities. Okay. So now I point this out because as you're suggesting, much of the rhetoric we're hearing now about the, uh, the war in Ukraine, which again, lest it go unsaid, Josh, we think is utterly revolting what's happening yes. to the Ukrainian people right now. Not as revolting as that, but nevertheless revolting is the commentary then we hear from American uh, foreign policy people and various media pundits you know, suggesting that what's at stake here in this war in Ukraine is, a, is an international rules-based system. Yes. Yeah, and, and lest it be said that lest it not be said that that Fiona Hill is completely oblivious to to the country she's part of and the foreign policy elite. She does go on to say, "What Russia is doing is asserting that might makes right." Of course, yes, we've all, all we've also made terrible mistakes. So look at she's looking inward and saying that of course we've also mm. made some terrible mistakes, mm -hmm. but no one has the right to completely destroy another country. 
Uh, okay. Uh, well, I mean, I guess you can destroy it as long as you leave after 20 years. Uh, if that, that's okay then. Um, yeah, yeah. It's such a it's such a strange thing to say on on any kind of empirical basis, right? It's insane. Because yeah. it's so easy to to refute, and it would seem almost pedantic were we to do it. You know, like far be from me to mention carpet bombing of North Vietnam. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, there, did I mention it? Okay. Would presided uh, over by uh, Robert McNamara, right? Yeah, exactly. There we go. It comes full circle. So uh, so you can only explain that, I think. And this is what we're trying to suggest in the episode today. You can only uh, or partially explain it. I think it's significantly explain it mm -hmm. by going back to this fundamental sort of faith in a kind of historical uh, a way of historical thinking. In other words, in fact, one of the things that Priya says that that was really beautiful. She says, when we talk about things being modern, you know, including yeah. modern views of the world and these part of what we're saying is a certain understanding of what history is yeah. built into that. idea. It's not often acknowledged because, again, it's it's uh, hidden in plain sight. But there is a kind of unspoken uh, assumption that you're talking about modern being the time in human history in which people discovered those otherwise latent laws of historical progress that have de determined then the course of nations over the last two to 300 years, two and a half centuries, let's yeah. say, uh, that that's part of what you mean. When you say modern, where you recognize it or not, that's part of what you're saying, right? Because I know you and I are often bothered by how you know, how loosely that, you know, that, that label can be applied, you know, Definitely. to mean contemporary a lot of times. Right. right. Yeah, 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 exactly. Or even, you know, something like, uh, your friend who does the, the history of the Mongol empire, right. You know, uh, what's his name? Not Westerfield, but, uh, oh, the guy, yeah, you know, Genghis Khan and the, yeah, Jack Weatherford. Yeah. yeah. yeah the, the making of the modern, of the modern world, world. Yeah. the making of the modern world and Genghis Khan, you know, I yeah. mean, it just, becomes almost devoid of meaning at some point to mean whatever uh, edgy thing you want to you know imply but really what Priya is saying is what it what it really is grounded in is this very specific understanding of of a teleological eschatological what Tim Snyder calls history of inevitability of yeah. progress certainly but also of war that can then be justified within the lens of that and so just as oftentimes we might find you know certain expressions of say religious leaders or followers to be what appears on the face, you know, raw and hypocritical. And we wonder how can, how can someone who holds to that particular religious view turn around and countenance, you know, this various things, you know, it, in recent American political history, it would be the American uh, religious right and their rabid support for Donald Trump, mm -hmm. who on his best day is a, a what an apostate, you know, yeah. vulgarian, you know, who has made it his personal mission to break every commandment possible, right. uh, you know, and then brag about it. But uh, so you think, well, how could these people, these otherwise, you know, self-described, you know, pious Christian people, how could they support this? Well, I, I think the same thing is happening here with history, you know, is how can how can someone in this lightened as well-versed, she knows the history as well as we do, Fiona Hill, yes. you know, as as uh, as close to it as anybody, you know, in terms of policymaking that you're likely to find in the commentaries. You know, how, how can she make those kinds of statements 
that seems so raw and and hypocritical. And I think, well, you know, because again, you know, your your worldview is imbued with something that, strictly speaking, is not subject to a practical test. It's a it's yes. an article of faith. Well, and what's so I, th- I thank you for saying that because that's it's so important. It, it got me thinking about something else that's I think really important to, to note here, which is that you know, as history was being developed in this kind of enlightenment fashion, in the particularly in the nineteenth century, there was this view that you know that. European civilization kind of placed European people, white people, as it became more racialized on, you know, within the path of history, like progress was now a thing that had been accessed because of, you know, this, this notion that uh, of civilization that had been invented. But what that also meant is that some people were outside of history, that, that people outside mm-hmm. of, of mm-hmm. the West, outside of that mm-hmm. civilization were literally stuck, stagnant, um, but immobile within, within history's, um, you know, uh, progress. And so part of the, the view of civilization that was being promoted around the world was that what it means to to become civilized is to join that path of, of history, to literally become historical in some ways, um, in a way they weren't before. Uh, because yes, the Chinese may have created a great civilization, but they never changed, right? So they therefore are not part of this historical story that is now being led by these progressive European nations, at least those that have, have jumped on the path. And so that that erasure of of people literally from history in that original conception is what we're still seeing today. Um, you know, all these images, these horrifying images, to be clear, of suffering Ukrainians, of bodies, of of children, all these kind of things. Um, there's been a lot of of bombings and destruction happening all around the world in the past, you know, forever. Um, the way in which the the images from Ukraine are presented versus how, for instance, images from you know, Afghanistan, or we'll go, you know, even further drone strikes in Yemen, for, for that matter, um, are not presented in that same way. And built into that, I think, is an assumption about who matters, right? Who's worth caring about, who, who's worth empathi- empathizing with. And built into that, I think, is this this sense of, you know, whiteness is, is what matters. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so again, no, when we talk- so yeah. important. Yeah, 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 no, I didn't mean to interrupt you because you're on a roll and it's so important, but there is an assimilationist yeah. Um, quotient built in. And so to the extent that people can assimilate or will assimilate in some approved way, they join you in history. Yes. Right. To the extent that they stay outside that uh, model, that assimilative model, they, in effect, stay outside of history. Yes. And, and therefore, right. yeah, safely outside, not right. needing to be worried about. And so Ukraine in recent years has done what? Has moved demonstrably closer to that assimilation, you know, even discussions about joining NATO, being part of the European uh, Union, uh, and in other ways, you know, becoming demonstrably what? More Western or something. You know, therefore, it's proper that we take a greater... Uh, you know, interest in and anguish over the scenes of destruction, which again, leave no question, this is all revolting. You know, these scenes of war uh, that have been brought to us, you know, via smartphones and social media, it's it's absolutely heart-wrenching and revolting. But so it was in Syria. Yes. Right. In, in the 2010s. And as you pointed out, in drone strikes in Yemen. Uh, so it was in uh, 
the uh, target bombing in Afghanistan, you know, mm -hmm. where, where local villages were being uh, destroyed and, and non-combatants. And yet, in some ways, those folks, even through the lens of the media, the commentariat, et cetera, and this kind of, you know, this bubble of history, you know, are somehow, what, they're just not on the scorecard. No, I mean, and that's we saw that in some of the early commentary with with you know people you know journalists who are who are sometimes on the ground in in Kiev and in places like that saying, you know, this is not the kind of place where we expect this to happen, right? Right. And I'm and I was that's not a direct quote, but it was it was that you know that idea that this place look at there's I mean I, they don't say white people but there's white people you know on the streets. Right. This is something you're seeing in you know in 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 countries where brown people live, right? This is something they're used to, but should not be part of of you know this civilization and. You know, so I, I I was hard on Fiona Hill. Her 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 article is worth. I mean, her interview is worth reading. There's some value in it. One that has no value though is a piece I read interview with Stephen Kotkin that was in the New Yorker. Um, I'd never heard of Kotkin before, but apparently he's a he's a biographer of Stalin, um, a fellow at the Hoover Institution, um, which uh, I didn't find out until after I'd read it. I, it was even worse once I realized that. But anyway, um, to get kind of get back to what we were talking about, about, you know, what matters and what doesn't. And, and you know, what you were saying about Ukraine kind of being elevated into this story of, of civilization. Uh, Kotkin says at one point, the West is a series of institutions and values. The West is not a geographical place. Russia is European, but not Western. Japan is Western, but not European. Western means rule of law, democracy, private property, open markets, respect for the individual, diversity, pluralism of opinion, and all the other freedoms that we enjoy. Um, that's what the West is. Mm. And that West, which we expanded in the 90s, in my view, properly, is revived now. So we, we're back to this kind of triumphalist, you know, uh, black and white, good and bad version of, of this history. Um, but you, you kind of see in that, in that statement the way that, you know, these commentators feel that they have this, this authority to kind of elevate those they they take as having passed some kind of test that that only they know the answers to um but also has the ability to then knock from from that level other countries who are not living up to you know these these characteristics these values and institutions that Kotkin so uh so appreciates it's a gross gross statement to be clear yeah i found myself uh, genu genuflecting yeah uh, as I would after, uh, you know, an in intonation of the Holy mm -hmm. Spirit or something. I, yeah, I, right, you know, right, right. It, it really does sort of take on a kind of gospel cadence, mm -hmm. even, you know, and uh, certainly a pretension to something unassailable and, and, uh, and, and like, you know, religious formulaics, you know, uh, like a Hail Mary, let's say, it, if you just say it, right, one time through with conviction, uh, what it, it's true, right? Uh, yeah, no, that, that's right. Yeah. In in Japanese, uh, my Japanese history class in college, I was writing about the, uh, you know, different Buddhist sects and the and the one uh, the sect of Nichiren, mm -hmm. right? If you just said the formulary once with absolute conviction, you were you were sanctified forever. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you, know, you didn't have to spend a lifetime saying it. You just had to say it once and mean it, you know. Right. <laughs> and that's uh, what those kinds of statements remind me of. You know, it's it's yeah, it's a great, it, it's so perfect. It, it really is, right? They're saying it to be heard, right? So because they know that it's being written down, they know it's going to be, you know, published in the, this case in the pages of the New Yorker. But they're almost saying it as 
like you said, it's like, you know, this is how I reach Nirvana is by <laughs> making this, making this statement um, right. in the right place, in the right tone. Yeah. What our thesis is, is that as historians, you know, what we want people to know that, it, that this conflict isn't so much the result of, of, you know, one side in a binary, you know, the, 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 the sort of the hero's journey conflict with one side mm. in the binary representing the villain. You know, there, there, there are plenty of villains for sure. The, but, but the cause of this is history itself. And more specifically is an understanding of history that makes this sort of action. And, and like you said, it's not a pattern. Yeah. It's just people doing this over and over again. You know? yeah. <laughs> They're not stopping. I think you have to, they have to stop at some point right. for it to be a pattern, right? Based on, yeah, based on, uh, you know, a certain understanding of history and what that understanding then uh, legitimizes uh, and, in, and endorses, really. Yeah. If you want analysis of, you know, the, the military situation in Ukraine, you're not going to get it from, from us. That's certainly not our, our forte. It's not our expertise. But what we're really interested in is is how history all plays into this. Not history as it's as it's being made, but history as it's being thought about. Um, history as it's being understood and misunderstood, I guess, by by the people who are thinking about and writing about and analyzing this historical moment. And so I want to I want to go here to a, a quote from a, a, a Canadian historian named Ted McCormick, um, who's basically an intellectual historian, very active on on Twitter, good follow certainly as well. But he says. Um, in response to just a, a lot of the the um, commentary that's been going on, uh, particularly about this this idea of directionality in human history, he says it is no doubt it is no doubt true that Russia's invasion of Ukraine jeopardizes a very popular liberal technocratic narrative of the direction of human history, popularized since the '90s by similar prognosticators. That doesn't make it our duty to save the narrative. Quite the opposite. Yeah, you know, when you sent that to me, uh, I thought. Uh, uh, Okay, this is the proverbial, you know, home run ball, right? Yeah, because this guy, to my way of thinking, understands that somewhere at the very center of what we're seeing now in Ukraine, uh, and and have seen, as we've suggested in the episode, you know, uh, in one guise or another uh, for a long, long time, uh, is a way of telling a story, you know? And it's easy to overlook this, Josh. Look, you know, we say man is the storytelling animal. You know, it's mm-hmm. we're the animal with the mythic imagination. I, I I, don't know if geckos have mythic imaginations. I'm willing to leave that open to question. But I know for sure then that uh, Homo sapiens, you know, at least since the development of what syntactic language. Yeah. Shout out to our, our, our friend, uh, Pat Manning there. Uh, you know, the, the sort of the, the cognitive leap forward, let's say, you know, of our, our, our species is this, this storytelling imagination, this mythic imagination that can exalt the human narrative into providential or, you know, mythical terms, uh, a divine, a kind of divine stage for the playing out of the, the human story. And so how we shape those narratives about who we are and, and what we mean and where we're going have an extraordinary influence then over the historical events that follow. It's not a coincidence 
In other words, that certain things seem to happen over and over, right? You know, including yeah. war, including, you know, the kind of destruction that we're seeing, that that this is somehow almost inevitable, <laughs> you know, as, as mm-hmm. Snyder says, you know, it, it's built into a narrative of inevitability, you know, of, of uh, you know, our mythic imagination and if it's almost as if say if you can if you can tell the story about it if you can imagine it you you can make that history happen or something like that and so yeah i think mccormick's absolutely right this is about a narrative yeah yeah and the narrative again like part of the problem here is that there are a lot of commentators who see the narrative itself as a thing that that we're, we're fighting for um and you know as as mccormick points out that's not our job to save the narrative, right? That what we need to be doing is presenting something different because so much of what's happening here, you know, again, we talk about these, is it patterns or is it just the same thing? I mean, part of what's happening is that people are seeing patterns because they can only see the narrative, right? And the narrative keeps coming back to these same things. Um, so, you know, ultimately what happens is that 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 narrative sense of, of how history is supposed to behave and where it's supposed to go ultimately determines the way people are seeing the world and in turn determines the way people act within that world as well. And that's where things get dangerous. And that's, I think, one of the key points um, that Priya is making in, in, in Time's Monster to go back to where we started. Yeah, it's definitely a story that has made us uh, sick for sure. Uh, and I hope that's clear in today's episode. You know, in other words, if, if, if being teachers for a second, we have to grade ourselves on whether we had a clear thesis statement, mm-hmm. you know, or, or something. It's, you know, it's about the story we tell ourselves and have told ourselves now for the past, uh, with, you know, 200, 250 years, 300 years of, of what we call the modern age and the, uh, the age of the nation state and, 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 and the idea of, of what history in that modern narrative represents, you know, how it drives that, that narrative. And I want to, I want to finish it uh, going back here to, to Tim Snyder, Timothy Snyder, the Yale historian uh, from his book, The Road to Unfreedom, The Road to, you know, that's a that's a popular metaphor in a teleological history, right? The idea yeah. of a road or a path or a journey, you know, this this idea of what a physical movement toward mm-hmm. an object, you know, a, a desired end of some kind. And if you set out to tell that kind of story. If you, as Hayden White would say, if you implot your story that way, either as a romance or as a as a comedy or even as a tragedy, there has to be a sense of an inevitability of an inevitable what coming to, you know, face with the ultimate end of the road you're on or something like that right now. So. Here's how Timothy Snyder describes this uh, way of thinking about history. He says, eternity arises from inevitability like a ghost from a corpse, the capitalist version of the politics of inevitability, the market as a substitute for policy generates economic inequality that undermines belief in progress. A social mobility halts Inevitability gives way to eternity and democracy gives way to oligarchy. An oligarch spinning a tale of an innocent past, perhaps with the help of fascist ideas, offers fake protection to people with real pain. 
faith that technology serves freedom opens the way to the spectacle. As distraction replaces concentration, the future dissolves in the frustrations of the present and eternity becomes daily life. The oligarch crosses into real politics from a world of fiction and governs by invoking myth and manufacturing crisis. In the 2020s, writes Snyder, one such person, Vladimir Putin, escorted another, Donald Trump, from fiction to power. Wow. <laughs> so there's a story for you. <laughs> well, that was uh, a great conversation. I really enjoyed talking to you about these issues. We haven't done this in, in a while, so it was fun. Fun maybe is not the right word, but it was gratifying to have uh, a conversation like this about these, these current events. And thank you all for listening. We'll be back in April for our next episode. And this has been History Against the Grain. We will talk to you soon enough. Take care. Nobody is innocent. It's a sin when you play into ignorance. Another one.